You are listening to the Mother Good Podcast, episode number four. Today we are talking about a subject I am most passionate about, the pelvic floor. As many of you know, if you follow our social media page, I'm very passionate about the subject because of my postpartum experience. And today we are talking with Michelle Musial, who is a pelvic floor physical therapist. And she was actually one of my pelvic floor physical therapists um, when I visited some family in Chicago. And so today we're going to be talking about what the pelvic floor is, symptoms of pelvic floor dysfunction, which include urinary and fecal incontinence, painful sex, constipation, lower back pain, abdominal pain, tailbone pain, and many more symptoms. And I know this isn't a really sexy subject, even though it includes some sexy parts of our body, but it's so important to take care of our health. You know, it's so important that in France, they actually have it as a standard of care that all women go see a pelvic floor physical therapist after having children, regardless if they even have any issues that they know of, because chances are, if you're a woman, even if you've never had any children, but especially if you've had children, you need to see a pelvic floor physical therapist. Now, a lot of people say, well, what did women do for thousands of years? Well, they just lived with it. You know, their quality of life wasn't as high, obviously, and it was just something that women were supposed to deal with. But now that we have these tools available and this form of therapy that can actually help women, we need to start taking care of our bodies and You owe it to yourself, your children, and your spouse to take care of yourself and fix issues that you have because the way you treat and respect your body is the way that your children will learn to respect and treat their body as well. And as Michelle says in this episode, which I really love, so I'm going to borrow it, she said that, you know, when our children get an owie, we tell them that we're going to help them make it feel all better. You know, we want to fix it for them. And that's what we, we teach them. We teach them that, You need to fix your body. And in the same way, if you are suffering from any of the symptoms that we talk about in this episode, you owe it to your spouse, your children, and yourself to make it better and fix the issue. So I'm going to get off of my soapbox now because it's something that I'm really passionate about. And without further ado, here is our amazing episode with Michelle. Welcome to Mothergood, where we strongly believe that there's no way to be a perfect mom, but many ways to be a good one. I'm your host, Emily Carney, and I'm so happy you are here. Listen in on authentic and positive conversations to get the best practical tips to help you live to your full potential as a mom. Our content is also judgment-free within the context of evidence-based research. If you are looking for a meaningful motherhood community and ready to thrive, not just survive, you are in the right place. Mothergood is a nonprofit organization funded by our generous donors. If you like this podcast, please consider joining them at mothergoodco.com slash give. Michelle, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for being on our show. And I know I already introduced you, but could you tell everyone about yourself? Sure. So my name is Michelle Musial. I am a women's health physical therapist. Um, that means that I do pelvic floor and obstetric-based physical therapy. Um, I work in Orland Park, Illinois, and I have been a physical therapist for the past 13 years. I graduated in 2006 with my Master's of Physical Therapy from the University of Evansville, and for the past eight years, my practice has been um, pretty much solely uh, geared around the women's health population. 
Um, and so it, um, it's been a very rewarding specialty. However, um, as much of a high demand as it is, there's still so little emphasis um, and little focus in on it in the public. And so um, I have, I'm happy to spread the word about what that actually means as a specialty for, um, for the public to be able to know how to seek it out. Great. Well, thank you for sharing that. And I know you're very passionate about the pelvic floor, as am I, from my personal experience. So I would love for you to give an elevator pitch for all the women listening for why pelvic floor health is so important. Sure, certainly. Um, I think the biggest thing is there's still, um, as open as a, of a society as we are about women's health, but there it still tends to be a very taboo topic, um, and there still tends to be a lot of stigma associated with um, with anything regarding the pelvic floor. You know, we've um, grown at, to a stage in life where um, we're very aware of breast cancer awareness, but when it comes to truly the pelvic floor, revolver health, um, even using the right terminology for what female body parts are, it still has become such a taboo topic. And so I think first and foremost, um, the number one thing is to appreciate your body. Um, and to take care of it, truly, you have to understand how it works. And we want to be able to function to the best of our abilities for as long as possible. Um, there is no such thing as um, having a problems that can't be addressed because of a certain age. Um, I'm a very firm believer that sometimes A, B, and C don't work, but you just have to keep following down the path until you find D, E, and F. So I think the point being when it comes to the pelvic floor, it is part of your body, just like heart health and brain health and gut health. It is a very, very important part of our bodies that serves so many functions, both for um, support for your back, um, dealing with going to the bathroom and having control and not having to deal with a loss of control of both bowel or bladder needs, um, importance for sexual health, importance for having a good labor and delivery related experience, and to not feel plagued by a body part that um, that you're scared about. So I think um, appreciating what your body has to hold and then being able to um, keep it that way and maintain function, not just be living with a dysfunction. So um, I think we're we're on the cutting edge of really having people become their own advocates. And I think that's the key is to listen to your body and be your own advocate for your own health because you do not have to deal with problems associated with this. It's not normal to have problems regarding down there, if you will. Um, and so we have to start calling it what it is. Um, if there is a dysfunction, let's take away the this part of that and restore function. I think that's the key. I couldn't agree more about the body awareness because I can't tell you how many women I've spoken with and then even myself, how it's just so easy to live in denial and you have this nagging pain and it's an in, in kind of an embarrassing location in your body and you just think, oh, it's it's no big deal. I mean, I remember going to my six-week checkup too, going to what you just said about being your own advocate and I just remember saying, you know, something doesn't feel quite right. I didn't exactly know what it was that didn't feel right. So I had a really hard time explaining what it was. But I did have to be my own advocate, as you said, that it's so important that women are their own advocate, because I had to really press the issue and say, no, I'm not okay to be cleared for exercise and sex and going back to work because I can't walk, you know? So I really had to press hard and 
Um, I'm so glad that I did because I did have really severe issues that required physical therapy. But if I would have just accepted the answer that I got from the PA who did my six week checkup, you know, she she already had cleared me for everything without even really consulting with me on how I felt and whatnot. So I'm really glad I pushed back and and said no, I you know, I need help. And I even though I didn't necessarily know what it was. And it's kind of embarrassing too that before having a baby, I actually thought the pelvic floor was something that was mythical made up. I mean, I can't believe that I actually thought that. uh, But that's because I wasn't really educated on it. Actually, I wasn't educated on it at all. I had no idea what the pelvic floor was, except I was told to do your Kegels. And I was told how to do your Kegels. So maybe can you talk about what exactly the pelvic floor is? Because it's actually a real part of our anatomy, both men and women's anatomy. So can you talk about what exactly the pelvic floor is? Absolutely. So when we talk about the pelvic floor, we're really talking about this all-encompassing term that includes the bones of the pelvis, the organs that rest there, the muscles that are underneath, the ligaments and the fascia and everything that holds it all together. The pelvic floor muscles are what goes into the true specialty of a physical therapist. So a physical therapist truly is a neuromusculoskeletal specialist. And so those pelvic floor muscles are anchored from the pubic bone and then sling underneath the body, connecting onto then the truly the butt bones where you would kind of sit, the sits bones, and then anchoring again all the way back onto the tailbone. So everything that we do in our body, where our right and our left sides of our legs are connected, there's going to be an intertwining connection within that pelvic floor. These muscles are working all day long. So as we're sitting and talking, they're working a little bit. We're sleeping, they're working a little bit. It's kind of like your heart. You don't have to tell your heart to beat. You get to kind of take it for granted, and it involuntarily does what it's supposed to do. That's essentially how your pelvic floor muscles work. They're always on. Now, sometimes they have to be a little bit more on. So when you cough or you sneeze or you jump or you have the urge to go to the bathroom, they have to work a little bit stronger in order to create a closure on the urethra to prevent you from leaking urine. Now, that's often what they do when you're five years old and you're running around. As things happen over time, many, many issues, we can start to develop a dysfunction in those pelvic floor muscles for a variety of reasons, but essentially the coordination factor of the pelvic floor muscles can start to change. So I want to be very clear, it's the coordination, it's not necessarily weakness. Um, Again, we live in a society where everyone thinks stronger is better and tighter is better. Sometimes tight ain't right. That's what I like to say. Um, It is about the timing of these muscles. They have to be working very, very gently so that when there is that extra demand, they can work a little bit harder. But then they have to relax again. And what about if they forget to relax? If those muscles themselves get stuck in a state of tension, if they contracted and didn't relax, now they're not coordinated enough to work for the next cough or the next sneeze or the next urge. And that's part of the problem that we start to see is that it's not as simple as just, oh, I have to get that weak muscle a little bit stronger. It's about teaching core coordination. So I love to tell my patients it's not about having core strength. It's about having core coordination. Those pelvic floor muscles indeed intertwine with your abdominal muscles, with those back muscles, and they listen to what your diaphragm tells them to do. 
So when we breathe in and out, our diaphragm goes up and down. Your pelvic floor works with that. There's this beautiful pistoning movement that happens within your abdomen. And when you are not breathing the right way, when we've had trauma to the belly, trauma to the back, or trauma to the pelvic floor, now the coordination factor of all of those muscles working together becomes disrupted. And so the key being to reset, to retrain that synergistic pattern of everything working at just the right timing is how we restore function. And so part of it is a lot of people do not have a good appreciation for how these muscles work. And that's step one, is actually understanding the where are they and then the how can we get them to work. And working them does not necessarily equate to doing kegels or kegels, if you will. Gosh, I really love that saying that you just said that sometimes tight ain't right. I really wish that someone would have told that to me when I was pregnant and postpartum because all I heard was, do your Kegels, do your Kegels. You know, the pregnancy apps I had said, do your Kegels. The doctors, when I went to my checkup, said, do your Kegels. And I read so many articles that just said, do your Kegels, do your Kegels. And then here I was shocked when I found myself in physical therapy and asked, you know, you, since you were one of my therapists, um, what did I do wrong? And I was told I shouldn't have even been doing any Kegels because some women are just so tight that they shouldn't do Kegels. And that's actually a big portion of the population, you know, especially if you're stressed or you exercise or whatnot. And I know you can get into this some more um, since you're the expert, but I'm so shocked that there's so many women out there that should not be doing Kegels. It's an over-prescribed exercise, um, yeah. and it's it's just not appropriate for everyone. Just like it wouldn't be appropriate for someone who's had a shoulder injury to carry around a 10-pound weight all day. Well, they would say, oh, that's going to hurt my arm. Mm, that's the same concept with the pelvic floor. Our bodies are all a little bit different, and so it's not that Kegels aren't for anyone, but they're certainly not for everyone. Um, and in my experience, because I am um, very known in my area for treating patients with pelvic pain, um, pain with intercourse, urinary incontinence, I'm known for being the person to help bring those muscles back down to a calmer state. And truly, it really is resetting them to stop kind of kegling on their own, because that's what those muscles tend to do. They they picked it up, picked up that habit, and then they ran with it instead of bringing it back down to neutral. So how does a woman know whether or not she should be doing Kegels? Let's say she's thinking about getting pregnant or she currently is pregnant, or maybe she's even done having kids. How does she know if she falls into that category of women who should be doing Kegels or if she's in that category of women like myself who shouldn't be doing Kegels? So here's here's kind of the basic rules, if you will, that I try to um, try to kind of give as a as a basic background. Number one, it's it's not that it's inappropriate to do, but the question becomes: if you are someone who has pain with intercourse, pain with a gynecologic exam, then you should not be doing Kegels. You should not be doing pelvic floor contractions, because ultimately, if your muscles indeed are experiencing a degree of tension, irritation tightening them is only going to fuel that fire and exacerbate the problem. So that's number one. So if there's any pain essentially within the pelvic region, 
it's probably not an appropriate exercise for you. We probably need to get those muscles to start calming down before you just automatically start engaging them. Um, that kind of tends to be the my, my number one go-to. If you're someone who has pain, probably not appropriate for you. If you have no pain and you have no problem, great. Then it might be a nice idea for you to develop an awareness. Here's the rule, though. No trying to stop your urine flow. So that used to be the old-fashioned way of saying, oh, find those muscles and try to see when you go to the bathroom if you can stop your urine flow, and that's the pelvic floor. Yes, that's true. However, when you pull in those muscles, actually truly stopping your urine flow while you are on the toilet, you then can be feeding into an inappropriate coordination of the muscles because when you are going to the bathroom, that is the time your muscles are supposed to relax. They are supposed to relax and let everything out. So when you start tightening the muscles, when you are having a urine stream, you're telling your bladder not to empty, and you're telling your muscle to tighten when it was supposed to relax. So next kind of step with that is if we're looking to start trying to identify these muscles, please don't do it while you're going to the bathroom. That's the wrong time for it. Um, those would be the location of the muscles, but it is inappropriate to try to stop your urine flow while you're actively going. Essentially, if we're looking to try to do a pelvic floor contraction, it is something that has to be done very gently. These are very small muscles. We should not be maximally contracting them. I like to tell people that truly we want it to be about a 25% intensity. So if you're someone who has no pain, but maybe you're questioning, boy, where are those muscles? It should be timed that you would do this little contraction while you exhale, and it would be a very light pulling up, as if you were thinking, where are those muscles that help me go to the bathroom? But again, not doing this while you go to the bathroom. So essentially, the key is to be focusing on blowing out while you would lightly pull up those pelvic floor muscles, drawing that pubic bone and tailbone together, and then letting them go back down. The key is the relaxation. We want to have that ability to pull in and go back down. And again, they're tiny muscles, so we don't need to be doing hundreds of these things. Um, that's, if anything, the most common mistake I see when people are trying to do them. They're just trying to do way too many, way too aggressive. And I've never, ever had a single patient in my entire career that has ever needed to do 100, ever. Wow. I haven't even had anyone need to do half that amount. So um, oh again, goodness. these muscles are working all day long. So we don't want to overwork them because then when you need them to work, they're too tired. And if they're too tired to work, then we start having problems. And then unfortunately, a lot of people are told, well, just do more. And the problem is that then when you do more, you're again feeding into the dysfunction. So um, it's a little bit of a tough love way of saying it, but how I'll usually word it is that if someone says, well, I've been doing my kegels, and yet I'm still having this problem. And I say, well, maybe you should stop doing them. And they say, I don't know about that. And I say, well, how's it working out for you so far? And they say, oh, mm -hmm. not so good. Mm, well, then you know, maybe they're not for you. So um, I truly, if it's an appropriate exercise, you really should learn to do it with a pelvic floor therapist teaching you how, because they will be able to teach you, first of all, if it's appropriate for you. But if I were to tell you just over the phone, or even if you were reading in a magazine, to go ahead and do a uh, gastric soleus contraction right now, you would have no idea what I'm talking about. That's essentially what happens when people try to do a pelvic floor contraction all by themselves. They're kind of guessing. You really need someone to kind of coach you through and teach you through the right way of doing it um, so that essentially you don't cause harm.
that's that's kind of the number one thing with it. So do you recommend that women go see a pelvic floor physical therapist as a preventative measure? Maybe they could just go in and say, hey, am I doing a Kegel right? Or should I be doing a Kegel? Oh, I would love that. But don't you know, in our society, we really don't have health care that is very supportive of, pre- supportive of preventative care. So um, essentially, that would be lovely. That would be perfect. If you happen to be in a state where there's direct access, um, and there is the um, there is coverage for prevention and well-being. Oh, that would be lovely. Kind of a general screening idea of, hey, is this appropriate for me? Can you can can I get going with some exercises that are indeed the, what I need for my body? I think that would be lovely. I think that's going to come down to um, whether or not an insurance company is going to say yay or nay um, from a preventative standpoint. From a treatment standpoint, um, these can be very appropriate for so many people. If we're talking about your care during pregnancy, if you're having any types of dysfunction, whether it be incontinence, whether it be a pelvic heaviness, whether it be any types of sciatica, any pubic bone pain, any tailbone pain, these are changes that though it is very common for people to have pain or problems, that does not make it a normal process. So pregnancy itself is not a pathology. It's not a sickness. And so we have to stop normalizing this idea that it's okay to have these problems. Oh, that's okay. You're pregnant. That's what happens. No, that's not what needs to happen. So I think, again, the key is to be your own advocate. If something isn't working correctly on you, if you know you are having pain, you're having any issues with how you're going to the bathroom, sensations of incomplete emptying, maybe you're not losing control, but you don't feel it all come out all the way. Those are things that women's health therapists can indeed help with. And so the key is, again, to to indeed be your own advocate, um, to see whether or not which types of exercises or behavioral and voiding strategy modifications are appropriate for you. I really like that list that you just gave of symptoms of pelvic floor dysfunction. And I would love you to give a comprehensive list of different symptoms, because I think that that's a big barrier for why a lot of women don't seek pelvic floor physical therapy, because they just don't know that the symptoms that they're experiencing can actually be treated and that there's actual solutions for them. For example, I just recently had a friend confide in me that she can't hold in going to the bathroom anymore. And she doesn't even have any children yet. And she said every time she had to go pee, she had to rush to the bathroom because she couldn't hold it in anymore. And when I mentioned pelvic floor physical therapy, she was shocked. And she said, Oh, I didn't even know that the issue that I had could be treated and that pelvic floor physical therapy could even do anything for that. And I I can't tell you also how many women have confided in me that they have painful sex. You know, they kind of say under their breath, they say, oh, yeah, I don't really like having sex because it's too painful. And then I also bring up pelvic floor physical therapy, that it can even help alleviate that. And they're just shocked to discover that. So can you give a comprehensive list of symptoms of pelvic floor dysfunction? So women who are listening can know that if they are experiencing whatever pain or discomfort that they currently have, that pelvic floor physical therapy can help them? Certainly. So um, for sure, pain with intercourse. It's not normal to have pain with intercourse. Um, And that tends to be where my passion lies um, because I have seen so many people be able to turn it into pain-free intercourse. That is not an experience that should be a painful one, nor should a gynecologic exam be painful. 
Um, I don't think anyone um, is excited about the idea for going for a gynae exam, but it still shouldn't be a painful experience. So um, painful limitation with the like inability to use um, tampons or a menstrual cup if so desired. Um, things like that, there should not be pain with any type of penetration. That's for sure number one. Urge-related incontinence or very, very strong urinary urges and urinary frequency um, that isn't just as simple as, oh, boy, I drank too much coffee. We're talking about something that happens on a regular basis where, um, again, not even necessarily a correlation with having had children versus not. Those can be signs of actually pelvic floor tension, not weakness. Because, again, it's a discoordination between how those muscles and the bladder are communicating with one another. So urge incontinence or urinary urgency and frequency, stress urinary incontinence. Now, that implies loss of urine control with coughing or sneezing or running or jumping or laughing. Truly, with any demand on the body, we should be able to have control. We should be able to have continence. So any degrees of incontinence at any age, that's not normal. There may be an entire aisle in the grocery store that's devoted to making you think that that's normal. It is not a normal process of aging to then say, oh, I'm this age and therefore I should start having to buy these products to deal with my incontinence. No, you should be able to have a much easier answer to that and solve the problem and truly to prevent the problem in the first place. So any degrees of leakage. Same thing for fecal incontinence. So there are a lot of women that I see that do indeed suffer degrees of bowel leakage. This is also not a normal physiologic process that you should be having a loss of control. So that is another avenue that certainly therapy can address. Um, there's another condition called pelvic organ prolapse, um, and it essentially has to deal with the effect of the organs starting to descend into lower cavities within the pelvic floor, within um, the actual pelvic girdle and leading to some dysfunction for some women, whether it be related to their bladder or their rectum or their uterus for that matter. Um, and so pelvic floor therapy can help with pelvic organ prolapse. It's the most conservative measure to be taken. And in a society where we hear on the news and this and that about bladder slings, why not try the therapy first? Try the most conservative route first. There are so many avenues that can help women Start the most conservative. Is therapy for everyone? Of course it's not going to help everyone. But at the very least, may it give you tools to help manage your symptoms. And then if you do need surgery, you may have a more successful outcome if surgical procedure was warranted um, because you've learned the strategies to help reduce the strain on your muscles. Tailbone pain, never normal. Scar tissue pain is not a normal process after having had children. So whether we talk about perineal tearing, whether we talk about episiotomies that have been done, or even C-section scars for that matter. You see the doctor at a six-week checkup after having had a baby, but then nothing else really happens, and you really haven't healed at that six-week mark. Soft tissue healing takes eight to 12 weeks. So at that six-week checkup, you go to the doctor and they say, how are you? And you say, I'm fine, because that's what you say when someone says, how are you? But the question is, have you really returned to everything you needed to? No, you're barely in survival mode. And so the point being, closer to that 12-week mark, 12 weeks after having had a baby, are you functional? I like to say you should be a functional hot mess, meaning you can function. You have no urinary loss of control, no bowel loss of control but no pain with sitting, no pain with C-section scars, no functional problems. You're going to be tired. You shouldn't have lost your baby weight yet. 
but you should be fully functional. And if you're not at that 12-week mark, call that doctor back up and say, hey, doc, you know what, I'm, I'm not quite functional. I think I need to start checking into starting to help reset my body. I think I need a prescription for therapy. And if they say, I don't know what you're talking about, say, here, we need to educate you. Because unfortunately, a lot of doctors just aren't aware that it is indeed an option. Um, and so if you have a local public floor therapist, they're usually really good about wanting to educate everyone. And so, um, again, being your own advocate is indeed the key. But a whole slew of symptoms um, that really can be addressed. I treat a lot of patients with abdominal pain. Um, I'll get a prescription from a doctor that says abdominal pain, question mark. These pelvic floor muscles, they love to send pain to the abdomen. That unrelenting back pain that just won't go away, sometimes it's coming from a little lower down. So if something doesn't feel right within the pelvis, that's when you start asking those questions. Wow, I didn't even realize that abdominal pain was a pelvic floor issue or could be a pelvic issue as well. Thanks for running down all of those symptoms. So let's say that a woman does have some of the symptoms that you were just describing. What are her next steps? You mentioned that she should call her OB and go back in for a checkup. And are pelvic floor physical therapists covered by insurance? Can you just give a quick rundown on how all of that works? So, of course, um, there's a couple caveats with with all of the conversation when it comes to anything with um, insurance companies and all that. First of all, it is a state-by-state decision on whether or not physical therapists have direct access. What direct access means is that you don't have to go to your doctor. It means you walk into a therapy clinic and you say, I would like therapy services. So that depends whether or not your state will allow that and whether or not your insurance company will allow that. Because even though some states do have direct access, some insurance companies still indeed want to know that you saw a doctor. So with how in-depth this part of the body can be, I typically do say it is best to see your doctor. Make sure that there are any other any underlying causes that may be outside of the realm of the muscles is that it is indeed ruled out. We want to make sure you don't have a UTI. There's nothing else going on in the background. So see your doctor first, whether it be your OB-GYN. Whether it be your primary care doctor, chiropractors can write orders for physical therapy too. Um, Some naturopaths can also. A lot of nurse uh, midwives can also. So whoever your provider is, have an open conversation with them. Um, I see patients that come from orthopedic spine doctors that have unrelenting tailbone pain. um, That, again, they're the ones who write the orders. So I think it's important to indeed see those physicians and make sure indeed that nothing else is an underlying root cause that does need to be addressed. And if they are okay with it, have them indeed write that order for the therapy. It can be as simple as physical therapy, evaluate and treat. Now, when it comes to insurance, pelvic floor therapy falls within the realm of your regular therapy coverage. I always encourage people, call your own insurance company, ask what your benefits are. Different types of insurance companies have different types of restrictions. Some may have a dollar amount that you may have of therapy services for a year. Some may have a number of visits that you may have in a year. Um, But ultimately, it's always good for you to be versed on what your own insurance company's coverage is so that there's no surprises because, indeed, this is healthcare (laughs) and it is 2019. It's still not not a perfect world. So um, it's good for you to know what your specific coverage is, um, and that's essentially where it gets started. So knowing what knowing what your insurance company says, um, most therapists then, um, you come in, you get your appointment scheduled, and the process gets going. Um, and really, it's a matter of education is the key and a little bit of everything. So um, some hands-on therapy, tons of tools for home, certainly some exercise, but the key being that you understand 
why you're doing what you're doing and that you're noticing gradual changes. Definitely. And at least I know for me personally, I had to call around a lot of different providers in the county that I live in just to find one that would accept my insurance because a lot of them were out of network or just accepted all cash. And I really wanted to find a place that accepted my insurance. And I I guess the last thing I would like to add to on sort of finding your provider would be not to be afraid to switch physical therapists. Um, I've seen some women that are kind of afraid, you know, once they've been to one, they don't really want to switch, even if they aren't that happy, or just go to a different one just to get another opinion too. you know, obviously, I would love to go to you, Michelle. uh, But you're in Chicago, and I'm in Southern California. But I definitely had to bounce around a couple places until I found one who I was satisfied with. It is a very intimate relationship. Pelvic floor therapy, it is internal-based treatment for a lot of women. So we're talking vaginal and rectal-based treatments. Um, it is a very intimate type of therapy. And so knowing that going into it um, can be a little bit alarming at first. And so you do want to be with a provider that you feel comfortable with. Um, you do have to listen to your gut. You have to make sure that you and you are ready for it when you're getting started with, but there shouldn't be any questions. It should be a matter of everything makes sense to you and that you do indeed feel very, very comfortable. Um, And again, I feel like you see someone, if something doesn't seem like it's driving right, for sure find someone else. Um, I will say on a personal note, I have had my um, my first, my son, um, and this is when I was a regular orthopedic therapist, and I had had um, a very negative C-section experience, and I had a lot of problems following that C-section. And I knew to go to a women's health therapist, and I went to a bad one, unfortunately. Um, but I could tell things weren't kind of driving right. And that's part of what inspired me to do indeed what it is that I do now, um, to have a different appreciation. So, um, again, I was really my own advocate, but that, that took some work also. If the key is if something doesn't seem right to you, then it's not. You have to listen to your gut. Um, that's the case for everything. You know, we have good and bad of every profession that exists in the world. And so sometimes it is just finding just the right match um, to help you indeed get on the right track. And, um, of course, we can't make promises that we can get someone better in um, X number of sessions. But I will typically say you should be noticing a positive trend. Um, typically within four to six sessions, you should be noticing gains. So, no, I'm not going to promise that someone's going to be 100%. Um, you know, and I usually see people at a once-a-week frequency. But within six weeks, I expect there to be positive change. So um, in the grand scheme of things, six visits of therapy, that's not that much to be able to know, boy, I'm, I'm going the right way. I'm, I'm happy we're, we're getting there. Um, and, it's, and again, it's, some of it depends, too, how long have you been having these conditions? How long have you been suffering with these symptoms? That can take a little bit of time then to get on that right track. Um, but again, listening to your body and your experience, it should be a good one. And um, if you're not having a good experience, find another person. They're, we're a little bit hard to come by. There's not a lot of pelvic floor therapists um, relative to regular therapists. But, um, but it can be worth the wait and worth the drive to find the right one for you. That's so true. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about symphysis pubis dysfunction, SPD, uh, many of our listeners, if they follow our social media page, already know that this is a condition that I had and currently still have postpartum. But it's actually a lot more common of an issue than I realize, at least for pregnant women, that as many as one in three pregnant women experience it. 
And recently, I've connected with some local women who have had SPD. And what I think is interesting is that they didn't even realize that they had SPD until subsequent pregnancies. You know, when we were talking about body awareness earlier, it's just something that sort of creeps up on you and you don't really realize that you have it until you're kind of forced to face whatever it is you're having because it just escalates and becomes more and more severe. So can you talk about what exactly is SPD, just briefly, because I know that we're running out of time, but I want to talk about what exactly SPD is. Certainly. So um, essentially, the pubic synthesis is where the, the right and left sides of the pubic bones come together. And there's a little cartilaginous disc that sits kind of right between there. So during pregnancy, you have all these lovely hormones that loosen the ligaments of the pelvis. But if the body doesn't know how to react at just the right timing, and allowing that to happen very subtly, that degree of a change, if it's happening too fast and too aggressively for the body, there can be pain associated with it. And essentially what goes on is those muscles surrounding there start to spasm to then fight that sensation of of a separation. Now, for some women, that separation of those pubic bones and, and truly where that disc is, it can cause quite a degree of pain, and that is not a normal part of pregnancy. We don't want to have pubic bone pain. Nobody wants to have pain anyway. But if there is indeed a shift of how those pubic bones are resting right relative to left, our bodies want to be symmetrical, front to back, right and left sides, all relatively equal, moving around, not getting stuck. If there's a shift and something gets stuck in a location where it kind of shouldn't be, now we're going to have pain. And so the point being, if I had one take-home message for everyone, well, I'm going to give you two because <laughs> I can't just leave it at one. Um, it's that you really have to do things equally. Subtle things like sleeping with the pillows between your knees, pillows between your ankles. We want right and left sides to be nice and equal. When you're standing, not cocking one hip over to the side, really keeping your weight nice and equal on both sides so that you are indeed helping balance out those bones throughout your entire lower body. Watching indeed when you're sitting, not crossing the leg one leg over the other. We want just a nice neutral base of support. Um, Step number two, honestly, it comes down to the most basic of the most basic. It's breathing. When you hold your breath, when you move, it creates a bearing down effect. It increases your intra-abdominal pressure. Now, when we already have a growing uterus, and you're holding your breath when you're moving, that is a lot of strain you're asking both your pelvic floor and your pubic bone to take on. And so the step to essentially help reduce that is to blow out when you move. When you exert yourself, you should be exhaling. So even for subtle things like rolling over in bed, don't clamp that pillow between the knees. Move your legs parallel without squeezing those inner thighs. Getting up from bed, blowing out as you get up, blowing out as you bend down, all the subtle things that you're making sure you're not holding your breath and limiting how wide the movements are with your legs. Getting in and out of the car can be a real challenge. Make them be little mini steps so you're not spreading your legs too wide that then's going to cause a shearing effect on that pubic bone. So those are little tips to help kind of prevent, but also to start working on the management to lessen the load and lessen the degree of that overuse. Um, those are kind of some of the just little ABCs. Now, is SPD commonly misdiagnosed as round ligament pain? I'm just wondering because I've actually had a few friends who ended up later being diagnosed with SPD, but initially when they were complaining of pain to their doctors, they were told that it was round ligament pain. 
So can you kind of break down the symptoms of round ligament pain versus SPD so women listening can kind of get a better idea if what they're experiencing is SPD or round ligament pain? So I think round ligament can be something that um, is definitely present for women, but it is a very, very different diagnosis than truly SPD. Um, and so the key being, even with round ligament pain, there are strategies that can be um, applied with therapy to help calm that down. Um, that one tends to be something that does work its way into a calmer um, pattern throughout pregnancy anyway. Um, where SPD is unaddressed, it tends to be kind of plaguing and it doesn't go away postpartum if, you, um, if you're not addressing part of the root causes. So um, the key being, a lot of people say, um, oh, well, I can't wait to have this baby so I won't have this pain anymore. But that doesn't mean just because you have the baby, the pain's going to go away. The key is address it as early as possible so that then it can go away and you're not suffering during pregnancy and you're not suffering postpartum either. Definitely. Now, I think you already mentioned this earlier, but I just want to clarify, is pelvic floor physical therapy something that even pregnant women can and should do? Absolutely. Absolutely. At any stage. Um, from a postpartum standpoint, again, we want to have medical clearance to make sure that indeed you're feeling the right way, um, that there's no um, other underlying problems. So for sure, that's the time frame where you'd want to have medical clearance and have that prescription. But um, but absolutely during pregnancy. There's no reason to be feeling pain during pregnancy or dysfunction. It can be addressed at any stage. That's so good to know. Now, I want to switch gears now to our final question that we ask all moms. It's a little bit more of a personal question, but it's in line with our motto that there's no way to be a perfect mom, but many ways to be a good one. So I would love to hear of a time when you realized that you didn't have to be a perfect mom and it was completely okay and actually even better to be a good mom instead. Sure. Um, so I actually uh, remember one of the one of the um, early on moments with my first, where um, having a day where I was um, I was down I was down and I just felt like I'm not doing this well. And um, my son and I were sitting down and I think we were having lunch. And um, we uh, we we're, we're a Catholic family and so um, we tend to say some prayers before lunch and even if it's just a very simple thank you. And I looked at my son and I said. Um, how are you doing today? And he said, good. And I said, why do you think we pray? And he said, um, to be thankful. And I said, that's a good one. I said, where do you think God is? And he pointed to the ground, um, which was a little alarming at first. And, uh, and I said, um, why are you pointing down? And he said, he's with us every step we take. And that's never something Aww. I'd ever said to him, um, nor was it something anyone else had ever said. And so at that moment, after, you know, those moments of sometimes the yelling, sometimes the hard days at work, sometimes not having the balance, I looked at him and I realized, you know what, we're doing this the right way. We're doing this. We've got this. We're here for each other. Um, we're all going to have our ups and downs. But ultimately, we have a lot to learn from our children. Um, our children, indeed, sometimes can be the best teachers to us. Um, and sometimes we're really, really hard on ourselves and you need to take the step back sometimes and see things through the eyes of a child. Um, and that's when you know you're, you're doing good. So for sure, not perfect. None of us are. But if your child had an owie, you tell them, let's do something to make it better. Do that for yourself too. Take care of yourself. Um, listen to your children, listen to your body, and you'll get there. No one's perfect. 
so we can be good. Thank you so much again for listening in on another episode of the Mother Good Podcast. We hope you really enjoyed today's conversation. And as a reminder, Mother Good is a nonprofit organization funded by our generous donors. So if you would like to support this podcast, please consider joining our donors at mothergoodco.com slash give.